so sweet all your wives and girlfriends thrilled to see you post them will armin post his girl today tick tock tick tock tick tock waiting waiting to see if he'll do it his sweetie his sweetie pie you know it's early because he tenses up every single time i call her his girl even though he was the original one to open the floodgates on that, and that is why I do said thing. The best is, this legitimately happened behind the scenes. Armin asked me one day how I knew he had a girl, and I went, because you told me very publicly that you did. Uh, it wasn't a big mystery. It wasn't a big, how did he crack the case? How did, was he paying attention? Did did he guess? No, you you did it. It was it was you. It was you all along. Anyway, um, happy Valentine's Day to everybody. Uh, whether you're a, it's a byproduct of the greeting card companies making you upset. Whether you're alone, whether you're early in a relationship and you don't really know what to do, that's the worst. That's that's actually the nightmare scenario. Is you kind of just avoid it altogether. I would say. That's the easiest one. Like you're, you're just starting to see somebody, just avoid it. Don't, don't, don't force it. If it feels at all forced, don't do it. And then I feel like if you're in a good relationship, you know, it's a little overstated and overrated, but I can kind of, I, I can almost, <laughs> I can almost tell who's in trouble or who's on thin ice with the way that they, they post on the socials. Some of it is just sweet and endearing. I get it. Others, it reeks of desperation. If it's up at six o'clock in the morning, it's like you, you did that as though it's, uh, did, did you do, what is it? Time release posting to make sure, to, to make sure that nobody missed it. You treated it like a, a job. I get it. Anyways, happy Valentine's day, everybody. Your gift is to the city of Toronto that you finally get, you finally get the Morgan Riley number. This is today will be the last day I talk about it. I swear to God, because it's it's so overdone with at this point. And and I think really this is one where most people have the same reasonable opinion. There's the odd person that thinks what Ridley Gregg did was the worst part of the act. Was unacceptable. Dastardly. It's not. It was it was a little much. But that's fine. And that's sports and that's fun. Morgan Riley's not a goon. He didn't go out there trying to hurt somebody. He went out there trying to send a message because the guy cares. And he got emotional at the end of a game where someone added insult to injury. And the league stepped in. And as they do with the Toronto Maple Leafs, they levied a heavy suspension. One that many people here now believe is part of a big conspiracy involving George Peros and whether or not that's because his career ended due to, I think it was Colton Moore that plastered him. Uh, or because Toronto gets so much attention that it becomes a point of discussion for 
days and days and days, and it's the center of the hockey universe. Even though I'm still not overly sure about this, because in the States, I keep being told that the coverage around the Canadian hockey teams is minimal. I know this one still this one still rippled into American coverage. I saw the Spit and Chicklets guys ended up putting out a video where it's their take on it. But again, it's it's mostly the same take. But we got it. It was five games. Five games from Morgan Riley. And whatever. It wasn't egregious. The point of curiosity to me that I'm going to talk to Myrtle about in a couple minutes is whether he thinks that all of the coverage actually ended up helping the Maple Leafs. Considering what Elliot wrote and that I referenced yesterday that in the history of in-person hearings since 2015-16, we've only got two suspensions that ended up less than six games. Now we've got three. So maybe they did shave off a game because they really didn't want to have... This is one where it's like when you... If you cheat on a test when you're a kid... You don't do 100% because then you know you're going to be sitting in the teacher's office. You got to cruise around for like an 84, <laughs> 84 to 88. That's the zone you got to sit in. That's the pocket. That's the realistic pocket that won't raise any eyebrows. All right? And that's what I felt like the league did in this one. But anyways, yeah, it's three-day saga for waiting for the announcement, the debate, snowstorms, Zoom calls, character questions, codes, leaf bias, both ways leaf bias. And it ends up with the Leafs' star defenseman losing around 200K. And uh, a weird explanation about how Greg shouldn't have expected it from the league, the way that they justified the five-game suspension. He shouldn't have expected it, is what the league said. Despite, you know, here's, uh, here's a couple of quotes I thought were pretty interesting from Colorado Avalanche guys that know him, right? Uh, here's Bowen Byram, who says this, quote, I know really Greg really well. I played hockey with him growing up. So I was texting with him after and he was saying, why did I do that? That was stupid or whatever. And I kind of, <laughs> and I kind of felt like it's an intense game. There's a lot of emotions going on. I don't mean seeing some fireworks like that once in a while. And I think it's good for the game as well. End quote. So yeah, Bowen Byram got the text from Ridley Gregg saying that was stupid. What I did. <laughs> okay. So it was stupid what you did, but you weren't expecting any repercussions. Okay, sure. Um, Here's another quote from another Avalanche player. Quote, I'm pretty sure if Greg had another opportunity, he wouldn't do that. If I had to guess, said Andrew Cogliano, 17 years in the NHL, by the way, for Cogliano. Anyway, uh, uh, that's not to relitigate the past because what's done is done. I just think it's farcical that the league is playing this whole angle that Morgan Riley's suspension is somehow worse than cross checks that we've seen to the throat, to the face, because it was during play and guys could, quote, see the, the stick coming as though anyone's, like, expecting to get chopped in the throat with a stick. Or that this somehow justifies the way that these guys handle their business. Which, again, for the record, is poorly. These guys do a piss-poor job at the NHL Department of Player Safety. All right? This is not a well-run department. This is not... This is not good stuff that they're doing here. So, yeah, he gets it. Yeah, it's over and done with. Yeah, it's annoying and it was way too much, but my God, do these guys just embarrass themselves every single time this stuff comes around? And, and that's the problem is when you don't have any faith in these kinds of institutions, 
you don't really end up with much, right? Because if you're trying to set a precedent, you're trying to tell people, well, this is what we're doing moving forward, and this is the way that things are going to be, and this is why we don't want to have this act. Nobody thinks it's going to be consistent. Nobody thinks that something's going to change, and everyone just is going to go on believing the same thing, that these guys basically just pick from a hat which suspensions they decide to treat in an extremely serious manner and which ones they don't and which ones are in the action and could have been expected and all the other stupid little lines that they put in those stupid little messages to the league, to the fans. Like any of us give a crap once the thing is done or any of us think that, oh yeah, no, this was done with really a a fine tooth comb. This was really done with a measure of intelligence. I've never respected someone with a Princeton Ivy league education less than I respect George Paros. I got to tell you, I just, I I'm like, who, so anybody can get in there. Cool. Good to know. Uh, okay. So yeah, that's done. Leafs played great hockey last night though. I said it on Leafs talk last night, really enjoyable hockey game, really good hockey game, tight, smart, simple plays. <laughs> I hate saying it, but pucks in deep, good puck retrievals, Good fourth line play, good depth, good play from the rest of the team's depth. It was a nice little notice to Sheldon Keefe that, hey, other guys can actually play on this team if they're given minutes. And yes, I don't know if St. Louis looked great. And no, I don't think that all those Leaf players are going to play as well consistently over the uh, course of five games without Tavares and Marner. No, I'm not going to be a hot take artist who thinks that Mitch Marner and John Tavares are uh, not integral parts of this hockey team or that they're somehow better off without them or that one game is a sample of. Oh, yeah. You don't, uh, this is a mistake to be paying this guy's a bunch of money, but it's like not good for them. It's not good. It's not great for their narrative, I would say, if the Leafs keep playing this way. Anyway, we've all hoped that the Morgan Riley situation is going to end up galvanizing the team, but I think what could end up being more important than the us against the world mentality is just going to be some other guys getting opportunities they may not have and whether they can thrive, like we saw Bobby McMahon last night, like I think we saw Max Domi last night, or where they really struggle and it becomes an even greater point of need. Um, the way that, say, Timothy Lilligren did, who started on the top pairing, but I think ended up fourth in minutes among defensemen. Anyways, uh, James Myrtle, senior managing editor at The Athletic. Uh, good morning. What's up, brother? Not much. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, okay, so Brad Tree Living is going to speak today. So I, I guess we're actually not done on the Morgan Riley thing. I just promised. I just did this like 10-minute intro of, uh, I'm done with this. Here's the take. Everyone's kind of in the same position. But what are, you, what are you expecting him to say today? Because a lot of people were calling for the Leafs to be a little bit accountable on this one or at least stick up for their guy. I personally wish it was Shanahan because he was a part of the Department of Player Safety. And so his words to me would carry a lot more weight. But yeah, he's, I don't know if he's hiding or he's trying to empower his guy. Usually I feel like the president GM dynamic is, hey, when things are going great, the president will show up. And when things are going poorly, send the old GM out there. Um, But yeah, what do you make of this one? I think what he's going to talk about is they're going to appeal the suspension and say they don't, they don't agree with it. That's what I think is going to happen today. So, and then there'll be an appeal process and, you know, it, it, David Perron went through the same thing when he got six games and, you know, it, it went all the way to, to Gary Bettman. And I expect, you know, knowing how upset the Leafs organization is about this and, and, and the ruling that that's what's going to happen here. So what are they most upset about? They feel like it was too much. They feel like if you look at other cross checks to the head around the league, that they weren't getting in-person hearings and, and, 
you know, and, and the other part of it too is that Morgan Riley's track record is as a Lady Bing nominee, a guy who barely ever takes a penalty, and they felt like that should have been factored in a little bit more. And they also, to the what Sheldon Keefe said, when, when did he say that? I think he said on Monday. He he said that, you know, the Leafs seem to be mm-hmm. in the center of these examples more often than other teams for whatever reason was, I, I, I'm not phrasing it the right way, but mm-hmm. basically, basically Sheldon Keefe said that because they're the Leafs that this kind of thing seems to happen to them. So that's, that's not just a Sheldon Keefe thing. That's, that's how the organization feels about it. Mm. I got to tell you that that part of it does bother me at times, even though they might feel that way. There is a bit of just victim mentality with this organization, whether it's the way they get treated by the media or the department of player safety, whatever that they that they let that get public sometimes to me feels a little annoying uh but I don't mind them sticking up for Morgan Riley in this case. And I kind of like the idea of them saying, no, we're not just going to take this lying down because yeah, I think it is at a point where they got to read the way that their fan base feels about this one. And for the most part, it's great displeasure with the way that Morgan Riley was portrayed and great displeasure that Morgan Riley is going to be missing five games. I will say this though, everyone was bracing for six or more. Um, because once it was an in-person hearing, it seemed like that was basically a certainty given the track record of in-person hearings. It ends up being five. Do you think any of that Leaf stuff, the the articles that were written, the conversations by other media members, ones that you know obviously carry a lot more weight than, say, this show, that all of that stuff around the Toronto Maple Leafs and the amount of suspensions they've accumulated and the way that they're treated by this league and the the threat or the the looming potential of an appeal, do you think that actually did impact the Department of Player Safety in coming down and giving Riley fewer than six games? I bet you that that hearing yesterday was very heated and very long and complicated. And I'm sure that that had something to do with it being five games instead of six in that, you know, the Leafs came armed with a lot of examples and ready, ready to defend the player. So it'll be interesting to see what, what Brad tree living says. I mean, it's not often that the GM comes out and talks right after a suspension Mm -hmm. to, you know, I can't think of another example where the, I mean, maybe, I guess some of the cadre things, um, but even then, I can't remember if the GM came and talked about it. But you know, I, 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 the Leafs organization looks back. You remember the Spezza one with the the yeah, knee to Neil Pionks? That's one where they felt like it was too much. Uh, the Austin Matthews cross check on uh, Dalene in in front of the net—they felt like that was too much. You know, I, I think the organization feels there's a pattern here where. You know, why is why are these suspensions higher? Why are we the most suspended team in the league? Um, you know, we're we're not getting we're not getting hardly any power plays ever. You know, in the Matthews era, the Leafs I I think they're last or pretty close to last in the number of power plays they get. Um, they're not a physical team and yet they're getting suspended all the time. And you know, I, I you know, and I heard you say this on, on Leafs talk, a big chunk of that is Nazem Kadri doing the things that he did in the playoffs. So mm-hmm. I think you kind of have to discount that, but you know, all, all I can tell you is the organization feels like there's been a bunch of these that have gone, that have been overboard. And, you know, I think there's a feeling that maybe it's just because the, the spotlight is so bright on the Leafs and the media attention is so much that mm. they get penalized more than other teams. So I, I really, 
here's here's what I'll say with this. The the young Leaf fan part of me goes, yeah, and I could see people saying, I agree with this right now, you know, because there are a lot of people who feel that way about the penalties, about the refs, about the suspensions, about the media, right? Like all these different things, they they coalesce and work against the Toronto Maple Leafs and poor them. But I, I just, every, even as you're saying it, all I can think is this is such loser mentality from the organization top down. And this is just so pervasive amongst them is that it's never you know, accountability within the organization. It's never, oh man, you know, we got to clean things up or we got to do this. And I'm not saying this case specifically, but I just, I do think that there is something to all of this that you're talking about that lends itself to part of the team culture and is at least a fraction of why they are where they are in terms of, yeah, their success or lack thereof anyways but back to let me ask you jd like do you say that because of just what you see publicly from what comes out of the leafs or is that is that like some of the things that you hear like because what what you're picking up on is a hundred percent real yes that's that's what i'm saying that's it's both you know when when you spend a lot of time around the team as Mm -hmm. i have in my career you you really see it and you know, some of it comes out in some of the player comments, some of the things that Mitch Marner has said, you know, like like they lose game three in round two last year, and he's mm-hmm. talking about the media. And yeah. it's like, what does this have to do with anything? Like, yeah. you know, like, and, and I'm sorry, like, I know there's a lot of media here. I don't think the media here is that tough. It's not like Philly or Montreal or Vancouver. There's there's a lot of people that, there's there's a lot of, there's, there's tons of media. Like, there's more media here than anywhere else. But I don't think that they're overly negative I don't think that they're the reason why the Leafs can't win hockey games, but it, it seems like over time there's become this mentality in the organization that that's a factor in why they can't win. And I, I, yeah, I guess, it, you know, kind of like a victim mentality that I think you're right, that I think they just need to get over and they just need to ignore all this stuff and just, just win hockey games. Yeah. But that's what I mean. If it was just the department of player safety stuff, I would go, okay, you know, I get this. But you just, the way that this is being spun, again, I, I want to see what those numbers are without the Kadri stuff. Because does anybody really think that any of Kadri was unfair? Like, no. does, any, does anyone really feel like that was different? I, I think that the gripe some fans have, which is fair, is that there have been other plays that have been really, po- like, poorly adjudicated by the Department of Player Safety. Of course, of course, of course. This is a, a sport that's very different from the others. And t- like basketball, it's pretty easy, right? <laughs> like if you're going to be doling out a player suspension for a physical play, uh, it's even like fairly simple in the NFL. They don't really do suspensions. They do fines. They, they accept that their league is really fast and it's got to be quite, quite, quite a dirty play, like Vontez perfect level for them to say, no, 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 we're, we're sitting you out for football games here. The leagues is the threshold is different and it's annoying for fans. So I'm just saying in a vacuum, this one thing would be fine, but adding the Nazem Kadri thing to it and saying, okay, how many examples of this are there really? It's Austin Matthews cross-checked a guy in the face and throat in a game and he was pissed off. And I'm like, that should be a game. Okay. So maybe he got one extra Jason Spezza's one where he needs a downed opponent they could have ruled that as a bang-bang. They could have given him the benefit of the doubt. That one I actually think is the most egregious. But how many of these games that Toronto gets are actually the, the Toronto tax, as McKee likes to put it, versus how many of them are, you know, fair or at least reasonable? And I think this one is a little unreasonable, to be honest. This one is the first one that I looked at and went, I, I think that he should get a suspension. But when they went in-person hearing, I was like, are you kidding me? 
Like Dangle said it best when he said, like, is this the second dirtiest play of the year? Because there's only been two in-person hearings. And I said, yeah, I, no, not I thought not, three or four games. Yeah, is probably it, the right it, number it, here. Exactly. Yeah. So this one felt, this one felt a little different, but I'm just saying it does paint a larger picture where it's like, okay, so the Toronto Maple Leafs truly do believe that the media is against them, that they believe the officials are against them and that, that they believe the league is against them. And do they use this as like a galvanizing thing? Do they use this as, okay, well, we're going to show everybody wrong? It's like, no, they often use it as like, well, that's why things went poorly after they do. And that part of it I find a little frustrating anyways. Um, so, yeah, Tree Living is going to address the media today. But why do you think Shanahan's not here? Because if, if you do have an issue with the Department of Player Safety, it sure would be great to hear from the guy who was in that role criticizing you. Like, well, I, I feel more comfortable being critical of someone's work if I've actually done the work rather than if I'm commenting on someone's job and I have no idea what they actually do. How many times does Shanahan talk a year? Sure, but that, but don't you think that this would be sort of a specific instance in which he has the expertise to actually step up to the plate and deliver a message? Like, if, I, if, if you're Peros... I would be listening with a with a uh, you know a more refined ear if it was someone who had actually been in my position rather than someone who's just like you suck at your job and you're like oh yeah well you don't even know what I do. I think I mean Shanahan does so little media and is mm. so I, I think that that's always been part of his his plan was to be in the background and to not be the face of whatever's going on and he's successfully done that and. You know, I find it even interesting, you know, with the team struggling and with, you know, some of the off-season moves not working and whatever, everyone's like, oh, you know, Tree Living had a bad off-season. And, and there's, it feels like there's so little blame, I guess is probably the right word, that, that goes higher when, you know, here's a GM that came in at the last minute and had a, had a really difficult task in front of him. And, of course, there were mistakes made. And, you know, I think that, I think Shanahan's successfully not been the face of, the team in a way because he's just not that visible media wise. He just doesn't do a lot of interviews. He's never on the radio. He's, you know, mm-hmm. he's around, I, you, you see him around the arena, but <clears throat> in terms of public facing, he's very, very seldomly available. Again, I understand this to a degree, even though he has been there for some of the media avails when things have been at their toughest. And it, it almost felt like he was actually stepping into either defend Dubas at times or be there as a a counterweight to Dubas, knowing that he would be maybe a little bit more personally tied to something or be a little bit more frustrated in those moments. Obviously, it was Shanahan that delivered the killer instinct line that we carried, well, I think to a degree, we still carry it till today. Um, I I just think that in this instance, when you're talking about, like, I don't need to see from Brennan Shanahan all the time. I understand the strategy. That's why there's layers in a corporation is that, it's you know it's easier to blame someone beneath you and it's easier to shield yourself from those below you when there is some kind of person in the middle that that is able to deal with the traffic and that's what tree living is doing i'm with you like i never thought tree living would take as much heat as he has this year given the circumstances this i thought people would be pretty squarely focused on shanahan as this being his season and yet halfway or beyond halfway into it. And most people do have that line of tree living. That's a bad signing by tree living. And I'm like, mm, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> like you mentioned, he's scuttled in the door. He can't even sit at the draft. And it's like, wow, this should be his team. It should be his fingerprints all over and not the guy who's before even Dubas. But I just think that what you mentioned about how often does a GM speak after a media conference that's exactly it. That's why I'd rather see both guys at least together. Like, you don't have to usurp 
Brad Tree Living, you don't have to undermine his authority. You could easily stand with him and everyone would understand that you could come out and say, during my history with the league, here was the way that we doled stuff out. This is the way we felt like we tried to find some consistency. These were the levels of transparency that we had with teams. And if we, if you're aggrieved, I would like to have the examples beyond just the number of games. I would like to have how Brennan Shanahan would have actually dealt with this differently in his role, given the fact that he has done it and put that out there publicly. I, I don't think that that's too much to ask. And if you're not going to do that, then it's harder for me to appreciate, you know, what you're actually bitching and moaning about because, like, you have the guy. You have the number one guy who should be out there speaking today and and criticizing that group. And so if this is going to be a one-off, then cool. Make it a one-off with both guys. Don't just send Tree Living out there to say you feel like it's unfair and then not elaborate on why you you feel that way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting point. I mean, we'll, we'll see. You know, I think Brad Tree Living someone who he's going to be super diplomatic about it. Like, I don't think this is going to be like throwing a, no, I mean, well, I don't think so either. He's throw awesome a bomb guy. at the league. Yeah. That's like his that's main just, thing is he's so good at being a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of why they, why he fit coming in is that he calmed over a lot of what was going on at the time when they brought him in and, you know, won won the staff over and won the players over and ended. I think, I think a few weeks ago, you called it the civil war, ended the civil war in the mm-hmm. front office. And, you know, so I think that he's going to be very diplomatic about it and just say we're appealing and here's why. And I, it's not Shanahan's style to come out and, you know, start criticizing the league and saying this is the way I would have done it in that job. That's just not who he is. Then don't complain. Like, that. be the change you want to see in the world is what I say, you know? I, that's that's my issue here. <laughs> I'll, stop, I'll stop berating it and, you know, I, I get it. I'm kind of beating a dead horse at this point. But to me, in, in all walks of life, if you are going to be a complainer, right, there's, there's two types of complainers. There's the person at work who just compl- who complains and is like, this isn't fair and this isn't good and blah, 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 blah. And every time it's a quiet moment, they're crying about something. And they go, oh, yeah, okay, well, what's your part in this? Like, what are you going to do to make things different? And then they're just kind of like, oh, well, I'm doing my job well. You're like, okay, well, n- fine. Get out of here then. I'm, I'm, so, I'm tired of hearing it. Or there's the type of person who at work bitches and moans about something and goes like, this is not right and this isn't good. And then they actually take it to someone and they try to make an effort and they say, here's why it isn't right. And this is why, because I'm doing this and this person's doing that. And here's how we can actually try and improve this and make this thing better for those of us around and improve it for the company at large or the organization or whatever you're affiliated with. And, and that to me is a, a real core problem is if you are going to complain then and you're going to p- make it this public and you're going to say, oh, woe is me, then I want the examples. Like, I, I don't view this as like, oh, well, it- this isn't his style. It's like, make it your style. Make it your style. Make accountability your style. That would be great. Anyways, end of rant on this. I'll, I'll move on. I promise. <laughs> I just, God, I'm so sick of this both sides thing that they do where it's like, we feel as though it's, it's so unfair to us. Boo-hoo, boo-hoo. And then we're like, okay, well, speak on it. And they're like, well, we don't want to go public. Like, we don't want to make a fuss. And it's like, okay, so you'll just make a fuss through everybody else. Cool. Got it. Um, but, yes, of course, it's the media's fault. Um, like, a lot of people aren't just parroting what the <laughs> – parroting exactly what these guys want them to say. Uh, anyway, moving on. All right. The team uh, – okay, what's your – like, Tavares and Mario were just sick, right? Think they're going to be back for next game? You got to read on that? 
uh, I poked around a little bit. I didn't get anything. So mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if that's related to the Timmons thing or not. I mean, that would be the that only be thing that would, yeah, well that, that would be the only thing that that's what I was wondering and no one said anything. So I, I don't know. I honestly, I don't know. Mm. Um, I imagine they're probably testing them for that. Like, isn't, doesn't it take a little while to get, uh, tests and results on that? Um, I don't know. They were, they were at the rink, right? So, um, I don't know. Maybe it's a precautionary thing. I, I guess we'll see. There'll be an update today. Uh-huh. Um, after we'll see if they're at practice and if they're not, we'll, we'll see, um, what it is. So, uh, basically we are a, uh, TBD potential kissing. <laughs> between these it's like, the boys may have been kissing uh, the three fellows on the team with the mono like uh, can't have it can't can't have this one well, can't lose those guys for that long I, mean, I like the way they played last night but yeah you're gonna need the, the issue with this team is a lack of talent not a a surplus of it i'm i'm no virologist or whatever like i don't know how it works but i would think like in no, close proximity on the plane and in the dressing room and everything i mean it, that that stuff it, it was i remember like around covid like they were just hyper Mm-hmm. aware of all that so you could see something spread through the dressing room pretty quickly mm, yeah um there's still still some of the funniest stuff is some of keith's best speeches are caught with the mask and as he's trying to be passionate it's just the mask slipping down and him trying to put it on like diligently it's like you couldn't do it you couldn't speak without it uh he's he's robbed sheldon keith would have had some great speeches had the leafs just scored some goals or he wasn't forced to wear a mask during them. Uh, anyway, uh, what about the injury to Jones? Wool is practicing. They had Hill to be up. Uh, do you expect it's going to be like, what's, what's the wool timeline at this point? Getting close, but they've been very careful to say, mm. they've been very careful to say it's longer than, than people were expecting. Cause I think, I, I mean, we would be at the, the original time frame would be right now. You yeah, know, that we thought he was earlier. Yeah, we thought, it, but I think, you know, those high ankle sprains can be really, really tough. And it's, it, or at least from what I'm told, for goalies, it's even worse just with everything that all the movements that they need to do. So my understanding is it could be another week or two. So mm-hmm. you may get your wish and Hildeby may play a game. You know, I remember that <laughs> that was the debate, yeah. you know, a month, a month ago. And Samson has been able to quiet that down, but we'll see here. Uh, the only thing is, is that if he was going to play a game, I would think that it would have to be against the Coyotes on the 21st or against the Golden yeah. Knights on the 22nd. And that gives them quite some time that that would lead you to believe that the, the Jones injury is something that's, yeah, really not good. And they're not saying anything about that one. So I don't know. I mean, stay tuned, you know, like it's, you look at that lineup last night and it's like, wow, like it got it got depleted fast. Like that was, I can't remember who someone made a comment. Like that looks like a September preseason lineup mm-hmm. with what they, you know, like basically yeah, like, like one split squad. Yeah. One NHL line kind of thing. So, you know, I went into that game being like, I wonder what we're going to get. And, you know, <laughs> you can't be surprised with this team where, you know, they, they ice their worst roster of the year and play their best game, you know, and against the St. Louis team that just, completely blew up Montreal on the weekend and that has been winning a lot of games and getting back in the playoff race. Mm. And they just like the, the Leafs were played. I, I don't know what your take on, like, do you think that the Leafs were that good last night or the blues were that bad? Because I think it was both. Yeah. I think I was, that you, you want, I, I, met, I met up with our blues writer after the game. He's like, they, like they were awful. Yeah. So they weren't good. 
they they obviously weren't good. Like that's that's pretty clear. I thought that the Leafs gave them maybe only a couple of opportunities in the game to start to get going though. And that's the thing when a team is playing poorly and a team doesn't have a ton of talent. Like let's be real, the Blues don't have a ton of talent. They've been winning some games recently, but they beat Montreal recently. Like you go look, they don't have a they don't have a bunch of amazing pelts on the wall. And it's like yeah, they've gotten. They've been getting by on squirrel meat with a lot of these seven wins, and they put it on the ticker. They went and said, hey, these guys' power play has gone through the roof for a little while, so they're winning some more games than they have naturally. I went, all right. Like, look at that roster last night. There's nothing spectacular there, right? Like, they have some I, good offensive players. Yeah, like they've, yeah, and they've, Shen got, and... they've got some guys for sure, except, you know, Shen gets walked on the first Bobby McMahon goal. You know, Leafs legend Colton Pareko didn't exactly look spectacular. The other Kessel, who I wasn't overly aware of until last night, uh, you know, didn't didn't have the finest game. Two goals against him where he looks a little uh, bad on two of them. Anyway, I, I just thought this is, this is actually what I'm asking for for the Leafs. I'm not going to give – I'm not going to take away credit for them because – this is it. When a team is playing poorly or a team that isn't as talented comes into your arena and doesn't have it, I want to see the Leafs squash them. I want to see them suffocate them, and I don't want to give them opportunities. And how do you give another team life is bad opportunity or, sorry, bad turnovers, sloppy play, lack of attention to detail. And what I'll say about the Leafs last night, no horrific turnovers, right? Good attention to detail. And they just played simple hockey. How much of it was just, hey, dump it in, go chase it go win a puck battle along the boards against a guy that doesn't look 110% tonight. And I loved it. I really did. I went, wow, this is really refreshing. So no, do I think the blues were world beaters? Do I view that as the same as had they beat, uh, you know, an Avs team that was primed for a game like this? Of course not. But I give them a ton of credit for that hockey game. I really do. I thought that that was one of their finer performances of the season, regardless of the opponent. I mean, how many games have they played like that all year? That's it. I, mean, I don't, I don't know if they've played, They've played periods. Like, yeah, they've played periods he, like that. No, I don't know about like, full games. Full games where just in control. And, you know, that one went, they were up, I believe, I think 3-1 late, and there's five minutes left. And yeah. I wasn't thinking, like, oh, there's going to be some comeback here. Nope. I was like, they, this is in the bag. Like, this is over. Mm-hmm. You know, St. Louis doesn't have anything. And the Leafs seem to have an answer for every every play coming their way. And, you know, I, I, we saw this last year from this team. Like when they were on going on runs, this is what they look like. And we just there's been so few examples of it this year. They just haven't been that team. And you know, they they win the two games against Winnipeg before the break, and it's like, okay, like is this going to be the start of something? Mm-hmm. And and then they lay a couple eggs coming out of the All Star break uh, against against Ottawa and uh, <clears throat> who was it? what was the other game that they were brutal? Um, it escapes me, but like. They, they just, they haven't been able to string anything together. So you wonder like, okay, does this galvanize the team? Do they, do they do something with this? No Riley depleted lineup. The, the supporting cast really comes through and shows you something, you know, I like, I, I think they should probably keep that, that Robertson Bertuzzi Domi line together. Like it looked like it looked like they have something there and spread the scoring around a little bit. And, and if anything, I, you know, I think that that game really speaks to, a point you've been making lately is that Keith needs to put some trust in some more players in the lineup instead of like barely playing people. Mm-hmm. And that game last night, I think that the players went into it and they were like, I'm going to get more ice time. Yep. I'm going to get opportunities on the power play that I haven't been getting all season. And they seemed fired up for it and they played like it. And that's what they need more of. Yeah. Um, I think part of the butts get tight for the Leafs and why they feel like they're going to blow some of these games is not the personnel they have. It's the feeling like they can't play those guys. 
you run your top guys into the ground. They're playing, you know, 22 plus minutes, the, the top guys. And then it becomes a, we can't make a mistake. We can't make a mistake. And it, it's just like anything. You, you can't miss this putt. You can't miss this putt. You're going to miss the putt. And, and I do feel like that the Leafs have that a little bit this season. And, and Sheldon Keefe has not had a good grasp of it. And, and flat out, I'm tired of the Domi thing because he's not going to develop into the defensive forward, the, the two-way superstar that Sheldon Keefe wants him to be. And some people probably think I, I beat this drum too hard, especially given what Domi has actually showed this year. But you watched him last night. You go, that guy can play NHL minutes, okay? He's, he's capable of handling 13, 14 minutes a night. And sometimes he's down below 10. And, and that's infuriating to me. Like, you, you got to let him play. Like, it, it just let him play. You, don't be so worried about every single, oh, well, this matchup and that thing. It's just Sheldon Keefe is guilty at times of gripping the stick too tight. Flat out. He just is when it comes to some of these leads. And his team plays that way. And the other game you were referencing was the Islanders game, right? Because you said right. Sens. Anyway, right. Islanders, yeah. they blow it late to Engvall. And what happens? It's one of their best players, Morgan Riley, with a turnover. And it's the same thing. The gripping the sticks too tight and the... The, the pressing feeling that you get with this team at times. What I liked last night was you rolled four lines, you gave everybody their ice, you let guys just be themselves, and you didn't feel tight. You felt like, yeah, there was a good attention to detail, but it would be a real crime if he went back to the way things were now, if, if he didn't learn a lesson from this. I guess the question to you is, do you think he actually will? Because sort of his entire track record as a coach is a lot of the stuff that I said before, which is when things get tight and things get tough, he whittles down the lines to two groups. I think, I think you'll probably see it here for the next couple of games that there's going to be more rope given to some players. And as soon as they, you know, if they lose a couple of games or, you know, then it'll probably be back to the way that it was and, and, and not trusting his bench as much as he needs to. And, it's it's you can't win in the NHL with two lines like we've seen it in the playoffs again and again and again. So, you know, and I know they need to add something at the deadline. They they need more than just a defenseman. They need a they need someone up front as well. And I, I suspect they're going to add something. But until that point, see what you've got. You know, well, Holmberg's had a good run here. Play him more. Mm. You know, I've I, I don't know. You know, McMahon like the way he looked in the AHL is he looked like an NHL player and he was all over the ice. And I mean, he had a goal a game with the Marlies last year you know, over a long stretch. Like what we, in that game last night, that's not just like a one-off fluke. Like McMahon's got some ability and we just haven't seen it this year. And part of it's probably he's only playing with camp and Reeves and he's only playing eight, nine minutes a night. Mm -hmm. And you can see why it'd be hard to get going. I mean, put McMahon on a third line and play him with some, some players that have talent and, you know, give, give some of these players a chance when they show what they did last night. Yeah. Um, I was happy to see, like, I, I thought Keith coached the game well. I, I do. He, he went with everybody. It was a real meritocracy. He started Lilligren up the lineup and gave him a ton of opportunity, and then Lilligren was on the ice for pretty much all of the worst plays, and then he bumped his minutes down to fourth, right? He, you look at the end of the night, and he didn't end up, trust, he didn't end up trusting him a ton. He didn't just say, hey, you're going you're gonna to keep doing this. He went with the guys who were going. Um, I... Like I said, I, I hope to see more of it. I'm not overly optimistic about seeing more of it, but this has been my case all along is actually find out what you have before you start to make moves. Because the worst yeah. thing that you could do is make some trade and bring in a player. And I'm sure those two guys, Tree Living and, and Keith, would have conversations about utilization and be on the same page as ter in terms of where the target is going to fit. But God, what a, what a crime it would be is if... 
tree living trades for somebody and Keith doesn't view that person as the right fit for what they need. And then you don't even end up getting the most out of them and you've given up a major asset. Um, but either way, or I, I mean, the other danger is they get a kind of limited offensive player who's good defensively. I mean, they're looking for a center, right? Like you get someone who's, you know, like a Adam Henrique or something and you give up quite a bit and then you play him too much and you ask him to, to do more than he's capable of doing. I mean, I think that potentially could be the other danger. Mm. Oh, I actually should have asked you this. This is a good reminder before you go is that have you heard them link to anybody? Are you hearing any whispers about guys that they would, they would like to target as of right now? Cause Tanev is always the the big one and, Every, everybody, but everybody's linked to Tanev, and I, I still am finding it harder and harder to believe that the Leafs are going to fork over a first-round pick for a rental. Like, I just, oof, uh, especially given that it's Tree Living's old team. I just, yeah, I, I, I don't, it doesn't pass the smell test to me. Maybe it happens, but yeah, what centers do you think? Like, you just said Henrique, but you think there's anything actually there? Because now the trade deadline is moving up by a month. We're, we're basically there. Like, this is the NHL trade deadline is the next two weeks. I, I wonder if Boone Jenner is going to be potentially available in... Columbus, I wonder about uh, Bukestad in Arizona. You know, there's like some big, strong defensive centers. Bukestad's got, a, I believe, another year on his deal and not yeah. hardly any money, like $2 million. Um, Maybe that might make sense. You know, they need like they need like a third-line center that can play some defensive minutes. They need someone who's better than David Camp. I mean, Camp's had a terrible year. He's making too much money, you know, and they, they basically – they need someone so that Domi, and then all of a sudden Domi's going to be on the wing. You could play him in more of a scoring role. You know, I think that that really balances the lineup out if you can find someone like that. And with some teams like Arizona falling out of the mix, maybe there's going to be some more names in play. So those are some of the names. And, you know, on the back end, if it's not Tanev, I, I, I'm not saying I'm hearing this, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Like, I think maybe they make a play for Hannafin, and then that's when the first round picks in play. And, I mean, I, I think that, you look at the package of what the Bruins gave up for uh, Hampus Lindholm, and that's probably what it will take. And you know, it's a they gave up first round pick and I think two seconds in like a depth prospect kind of thing. Now the Leafs don't have second round picks, but it's going to be expensive. But if Hannafin's interested in signing here, I think it's something you got to look long and hard at if you're the Leafs. Mm. Yeah, um, I think that's the only guy that if you're moving for that at least we've heard on the blue line wise. Uh, that I would be willing to move the the first four. Like the Tanev thing to me would be a nightmare. I really, I really, and, and yeah, I like I, I like Tanev a lot. This is not an indictment of him whatsoever. It's just, yeah, first round pick for less than you know a quarter of a season of a an aged player with an injury history who you're just trying to get in on the negotiating floor with, despite uh, yeah, no real track record of that working in your favor outside of old veterans like Mar- or the one-off of Mark Giordano. Like that didn't work for uh, Nick Felino when they traded first for him. People like to point to the Geo one, but they never talk about how you know Felino came on this show and publicly said. They tried to lowball me and I didn't appreciate it. And so I walked to a rival. Like, okay, mm-hmm. doesn't always work. Hometown discount doesn't always work when you bring in a guy. Hasn't always for this. Uh, I guess it's a bit of a different front office, but either way. Um, I do like the idea of Bukestad though. Like, obviously I'm not watching a ton of Arizona games this year, but I've, I've liked his game in the past. And yeah. Uh, that, he, was, he was decent for Edmonton in the playoffs last yeah, year. I mean, I mean, he scored, he scored some big goals. Big goals and, yeah. 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 So, I think that's what they they need someone like that. And the the thing that's great about him, and I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the acquisition cost is, that there's some term there. Like, it's not just it's a one pure more rental. And... He's got one more year left at $2 million bucks, which would really help this team with a bit of cost certainty and especially one, a price tag that's that low down the middle, right? Like, that, yep. that, that would be... 
that would be a good deal for them. As long as, again, though, you, you like, he's just not a guy that you could give up a first for. And so, no, yeah, um, no, but they need to just kick tires and all kinds of players sure. like that. And there's, there's good veteran players. And I think the concern is going to be the asking price for everybody yeah, at this it. deadline is going to be really high because what's available is, uh-huh. is, is not great right now. I I think all of the buyers right now are just hoping that more teams fall into the seller category mm-hmm. and they get to the deadline and they're like, I just got to get something. And then the prices come down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny too because you know most of my mind when I think about Bukestad is Florida, obviously. Uh, that's when I watched him the most, and I was just like, "Yeah, I know that was only a couple of years ago." It's like, no, that was uh, he. He left there in 2019. Was he Minnesota for a while? Yeah, Minnesota and Pittsburgh were the other spots. So, right. yeah. Anyway, he bounced uh, around a lot. Yeah, for sure. But again, just like a big body guy who can play down the middle and be responsible defensively, I think that that's. Yeah, on a cheap contract, add a little depth to your team, an actual real NHLer. It's not bad. Um, it's not a bad idea. Anyway, uh, James, uh, looking forward to you know both of us getting a chance to see Tree Living speak today and see how many of your predictions were correct. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> All right, sounds good. See you, pal. Uh, James Riddle, senior managing editor at the Athletic. Anyway, um, I'm gonna just tie this up quickly before we take a break, and it ties into what I'm gonna be talking about on the other side. Uh, I won't have as much time for it. We went a little long there, but okay. I think that in general, we could probably most of us agree that in society today, not to get overly preachy, but there's, there's a little bit of victim mentality is pervasive. It's pervasive. It's like a lot of people all over, they like to play the victim and there's currency in that. And, and especially when it comes to social media, but even in real life, you see it permeate through. And with the Leafs, I am sympathetic to their <laughs> plight, let's say, uh, uh, when it comes to these suspensions because it's annoying, and I feel it too, and I hate it. And I, and I watch this team all the time, and I push back on some of the officiating stuff because I do think that that kind of happens to every team. And then you see the stats like last year where they don't end up with a five-on-three, and you go, damn, NHL, that's a little fishy, okay? Oof. It's a little tough to accept that this team doesn't get any of the penalties, right? It's a little tough to accept that Matthews doesn't draw more when other superstars do, but fine, okay, ugh. So I understand their position at times when it comes to the suspensions, when it comes to the officiating, when it comes to the media, because a lot of teams, they would love, I guess, to have no coverage and for people not to care and have to do insane ticket drives to get people in the building. Maybe that's what the Leafs want, is they want to be the Arizona Coyotes. That's what Austin Matthews dreams of. He's raised on it. And he's like, man, it would just be the best if the the major discussion around our hockey team was whether or not we should move um, or whether it's sustainable here or like the Winnipeg Jets where it's just, oh, if you don't have everybody in town going to the game every night, it's a crisis point. Maybe that's what they want. I don't know. Based on the way that they talk about it sometimes, privately and publicly, you would think that that is the case. What was them? What was them that there is so much coverage and that so many people care about the team? Anyways, my, my point is when you see this stuff where it's Marner and he's talking about the media like he did earlier this year, like he has in playoff past, the way that these guys have acted as though it's adversarial. And if you think I'm over-personalizing this, switch it to the Department of Player Safety that we all hate or the officials. When you're constantly as an organization saying, well, it's, this is why these things are happening or there are so many forces working against that. I do think that that permeates to everybody. I think that culture is a very real thing. It, it is. I've been on shows with good culture, bad culture, 
Everybody's worked in places where there's good culture, there's bad culture. It's just, it, it, it impacts the work and it impacts the accountability at the end of it. Because if you've got people that are just like making excuses and like, oh, this is why I wasn't able to get this done. It's like, okay, you're going to lose. You're, you're probably, if you've got somebody who makes excuses, my guess is, is that they're making them in a lot of different walks of life. And that's the thing that scares me out of all of this. If I'm being real, it, again, two things can be true. Leafs can be getting a bit of a raw deal, but Leafs could also be making a bigger deal of it at times than they probably should. And, and I'm not sure if the culture is great. And I'm, I, I believe in accountability. I really do. And I, I think that people should be held accountably reasonably. And sometimes I wonder if that's, you know, the case within the organization. And I wonder if that's going to be the case moving forward with the Raptors. Because the Raptors did have a good culture, a really great culture, one that you could point to in the city and say, man, this, this is really, this is the shining example, what Masai Ujiri has built here. That to the point where they, they sustained a trade of DeMar DeRozan, the most popular player in the organization, a family man, someone who embraced this city like no star had ever done before. He was the best friend of the greatest Raptor of all time, Kyle Lowry. There's video evidence of guys talking about what it meant to them when it happened and he traded Kawhi Leonard. And yes, they brought in an immense, an immense talent, but then they moved off of Jonas Valanciunas and they moved off of CJ Miles and DeLon Wright and other players that had really helped build this team towards a championship and it, it remained the same thing. They were awesome. They were rocks. They won a championship and part of that was culture. That's why even when Kawhi left, the Raptors remained one of the most competitive teams in the NBA. It wasn't purely talent. It was culture. And why? Because they had a player in Kyle Lowry who held everyone accountable to the point where he was holding referees accountable in practices. And I got to say that what's going on right now makes me a little nervous. I'll talk about it next. Sportsnet 590, the fan. All right, I... No matter how long I do this job, I'm just stupid. I, I never calculate the time properly when it comes to the hours, breaks. So, yeah, I've, I, I just spoke about accountability, why I think it matters, culture building. And I'm going to discuss that in reference to Scotty Barnes and the Raptors especially as they welcome back another guy who was a part of, yeah, the best culture the organization has ever had and Pascal Siakam as he returns tonight. But I'm going to do that on the other side of the break. Quick break and we'll be back. Okay, so Pascal Siakam's in the house tonight. If you're going to the Raptors game, our intrepid reporter, J.R. Manitad, breaking the news that Siakam's video and the honoring of Scotty Barnes would happen before tonight's game early so if you're going don't be don't be lackadaisical about it be be quick but don't hurry get down to the arena and be there if you uh if you want to say thanks for your time and the memories pascal siakam my guess is that he'll get that every time he returns but it was cool being there for fred van vliet last friday even though he didn't play it's nice to be able to acknowledge guys who have done a lot for the franchise and yeah i got a little I, I'm not a, I'm a pretty sentimental person in general. I'm not afraid to shed a tear when something gets me. The Siakam video that he released yesterday for Toronto, the him going through when he was traded and him being gone, it got me a little. I didn't, 
I didn't cry, but I was definitely moved by it. It did make me think a lot about the the player that he was. And people go, yeah, weren't you advocating for the trade? And I said, yeah, of course, because the team wasn't going anywhere. I'm always going to root for what's best for the organization. I'm always going to be a Raptors fan and a fan of this city. And I want to see another championship someday here. The, the championship is the best thing that I've experienced since living in Toronto. Winning in sports has been some of my, have those have been my favorite memories. And yeah, some of them have been to different degrees, right? Championship was the, the peak of that. So I was rooting for another championship. I know it can be done here. I've seen it happen. But don't get me wrong. I was sad when Siakam left. And I, I made that very clear when I, I spoke about him in the terms that I, I believe he should be spoken in, which is that this guy was an awesome pro, a great representative of the city. A dude that was a real totem of player development and maximizing those things. But I, I was thinking about the parallels between him and Barnes tonight because it is an interesting game. It's the guy who the Raptors tried to make the guy and we found out wasn't the guy in Siakam, right? Siakam was a really good player. Really good player. Awesome player. All NBA level. Good defensively. Awesome offensively but not the late crunch time score that the Raptors needed him to be in order to continue to double, or I shouldn't say double, but triple down on this core. Had his moments, his really tough moments in the playoffs when the chips were down and it mattered the most and people excused the, actually I shouldn't say they excused it, but we tried to at least understand the Celtic series through the lens of it was a pandemic and the guy was in his bag that year and some interruptions affected players worse than others. And it was pretty clear that the pandemic and, and losing his ability to play and living in Toronto hurt Siakam's game more than it did some other players who had, you know, a, a deeper, a deeper history with the game to reach back and, and touch or more access and more opportunity to keep their games refined than Siakam did. Either way, he went into the bubble and it was really a bit of the beginning of the end of believing that he was going to be the guy. And then there was this moment where Kyle Lowry left and it was officially the keys to the kingdom were Siakam's. And it was a season that was marred by a lot of crunch time failures. It was opportunity after opportunity. Hey, go close this game out. Hey, it's tight. And Siakam was not able to get the job done. And then there was the series against the Sixers where he blinked first and he was great to close that series. And that's why the Raptors probably stayed together the way that they did. But he started the series so poorly that it put the Raptors behind the eight ball and the rest is history. So the question is, can the new guy, Scotty Barnes at age 22, become the guy that people hoped Siakam would be? Because Siakam inherited the keys much later than Barnes did, right? He was ready. Grange wrote a, a really good piece yesterday. It's up on sportscent.ca right now. And he outlined that, Let's make it very clear. This, this guy is a kid, and he is not ready to inherit being the face of a franchise and all of the things that come with it right now. And it was pointed out to me by Orrin Winesfield, who tweeted at me yesterday, hey, it's not exclusive to Scotty Barnes, where guys have had issues with chemistry or body language or teammates. And of course, that's true. He did use Luka Doncic as an example, which I, I think is actually part of the problem with Scotty Barnes. Is like Luka Doncic at 22, averaged 28, 9, and 9. Scotty Barnes made the All-Star team, yes, but... He's doing it averaging, what, 25 and I want to say seven? Um, yeah, 
you get a little bit of different leniency when you're a, the the scorer of the the league at 22 versus a guy who's trying to put a scoring package together beyond set three point shots and using your size and force to bully your way to the basket and shoot a little baby hook. 28 and six. Okay. Yeah. I was close for off the top of my head. Some credit. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Anyway, part of the reason I think the Raptors got the most out of Pascal Siakam is that they had a really good culture. People, I don't think people forget. God, I almost leaned on such a stupid crutch. But let's not forget, okay? Let's not forget. The Raptors were just viewed as this bastion of player development. Wow, they, they got an undrafted guy. They got a 27th overall pick. Oh, they won a championship without any lottery picks, all this different stuff. They had culture setters. They had table setters. When Fred Van Vliet came to the NBA... He wasn't handed the keys to the castle right away, nor should he have been. And I get the difference between, you know, a, a lottery pick of Scotty Barnes's ilk versus a, an undrafted free agent like Fred Van Vliet. But I couldn't stop thinking about Benchmob. But what, what came before Benchmob? Lowry plus the bench. Lowry plus the bench. And how do you think it impacted all of those young players playing with a guy who would do anything to win that when he was slighted, even in the smallest way would react, would sorry, would elicit the reaction from the play-by-play analyst going, don't poke the bear. And we all knew, and we all knew. Do you guys remember times where Kyle Lowry didn't hustle back on defense? I remember times where he was yelling at the officials, grinding on officials. Cause God, he was that there's no doubt about that. But this was also a veteran in the league who had established multiple all-star games. And yeah, it's kind of known for, ripping at every single edge and did that in a very different way. Um, The thing that's getting lost with the Scotty Barnes discourse from the last couple of days and the not hustling back on defense is that this is not a one-off for him. Okay. This is not a one game situation. This has happened a lot over the course of his career. It has. And I don't know why people are trying to dismiss that. And I thought Will Lou made a great point yesterday on the Raptor show saying that if you, that's why you kind of got to go to some of these games once in a while is because it looks much, much worse on person than it does in television. Some of you were thinking that I'm overreacting to this. It's like, no, I was there. I watched it and I watched it very, very attentively. And I think that it's kind of doing a bit of a disservice to the fan base that uh, like a lot of people are trying to really wipe this under the rug and say like, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And you're like, mm, it's kind of a deal. It's kind of a deal that Scotty Barnes got an opportunity to discuss it yesterday. And he, he dismissed it. And, and some of you are going to say, he said it was a bad look. I watched, I watched it. I watched the video. We have the audio of it. Like, the entire time, he's shrugging his shoulders. He's saying um, that he thought that the game was already done. He, he thought it wasn't a big deal, first of all, because he, he flat out says, I don't know, there's a couple seconds left in the game. It's like the whole concept of team sports is that you win as a team and you lose as a team. And if he didn't think that it was a big deal or that it was different at all, it's like, well, then why do you never do it in other situations? Like, no, man, you were pouting. You had an emotional reaction. And he says the thing where he's like, it wasn't other people, it was me. Yeah, I I think that you're being earnest in that. I don't think that you were trying to throw other teammates under the bus or be upset with other teammates. 
But this is about you being able to learn how to control your emotions. And how do you learn something? It's that you take accountability. I've referenced this story before, but, and I, but I, it's because it means something to me. I'll never forget. I got in a fist fight when I was in grade 10. And I had an outdoor ed teacher, and I'm from the Yukon, so that's why you have an outdoor ed teacher. But I had this outdoor ed teacher named Jeff Teasdale, and he busted up the fight between me and this kid, Dan. And he, Dan immediately just started apologizing and understood, and he let him go. And then he started ripping on me, and he was like, you know why you're still doing this? He's like, you always make excuses. You don't take accountability. You don't understand what you did wrong. And that's why I need to treat you differently. And man, did it stick. I went, holy crap, that's the whole key to a lot of this is in order to actually improve something, you have to understand why you made the mistake in the first place. If you just start to get defensive and you just start to spin off why it's not your fault, then it's likely to repeat itself. And that's the thing I'm worried about with the Scotty Barnes thing to a degree. Again, yes, he's 22. I understand. I'm not trying to just bury this kid. I like Barnes. I hope that he succeeds. I think that he's extremely likable. I see a ton of raw talent. He is the path to me enjoying Raptors games again, the city that loves the Raptors, getting enjoyable basketball again that will show up and ride or die for this team no matter what, this ride or die fan base. I want Scotty Barnes to get the most out of himself. But there aren't people could, like bringing the vets, bringing the vets. He's had a lot of vets around him. He's had Pascal Siakam. He's had Fred Van Vliet. He had Thad Young. Yeah, say what you will about that young and whatever the value of him is and blah, 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 blah. But yeah, they, they also had a public blow up before a game once and it was dismissed as, oh, it's a nothing. It's like, okay, sure. It's always a nothing. Um, he had a coach who said, maybe this is a little lost in translation. They did follow up on it, but he had a coach who's like, we talked about it and coach is trying to address it and they're not going to suspend him. And then right after Barnes comes out and says like, we didn't really talk about it. It's like, okay. And he says he clarifies that they talked about the game and then it came up at the end. It wasn't the main point of emphasis and maybe that's just a miscommunication. But either way, like, I don't, I don't need Scotty Barnes to show up at a media conference and just be, like, overly apologetic because I think that a phony, over-the-top apology is lame. And I don't think that this should be the biggest of deals. I don't. I, I think it's a bigger deal because it's, in, it's not in a vacuum. If this was a one-off and Scotty Barnes was always an awesome guy and there were no questions around him when it came to this stuff, they wouldn't have even brought it up. I would have said, ah, well, you know, tough game. Tough game for Barnes, bad look for Barnes. Like he said, whatever, let's keep it moving. But it's clearly something that they felt needed addressed, and it was something that the fan base like paid you know, attention to. People pay hard-earned money to go to a basketball game, and it's tough when your star player, who's just named to the All-Star game and who's about to be honored to going to the All-Star game, a lot of which is because of fans pushing that narrative, eh, you, you play that poorly. You, he quit. He quit on that game against the Spurs, flat out. He quit. He was, he, and he quit early too. He did not give his best effort. And then, so yeah, to show up and then basically be bad body language. I know a lot of you are going to be saying I'm nitpicking this, but go watch it then. Go watch it and tell me that if somebody was delivering, you know, or really thought that they had done something wrong and they delivered it this way, that it would be the same or that you would look at it and go, no, this is good enough for me. Um, you can sort of take the quotes, however you want to take them, but to me, I saw a guy who's shrugging as he's talking about it, who's saying that there's only a couple seconds left in the game, who's downplaying the idea of it being a big deal, which again, not the biggest deal, but it was a something, um, is contradicting his coach openly and then sort of capitulating and saying it's a bad look. And then he has even one moment where he's like, yeah, if it offended somebody or if it impacted somebody, then I'm sorry. It's like, is that what you want usually when you get 
accountability from someone is for them to say if, if it did. It's like, no, we've already established that it had an impact on the fans and the people that observe the game. You know, everybody that's covering it is, as a group, it's no dummies. People watch this sport a lot. And so if they're going to bring something up and your coach even mentions it, then yeah, it's probably a, it's probably something that you should shore up. Anyways, I didn't think it was great. And so it was just a reminder that they have brought in vets, but if you're going to be the best player on the team and he'll have to evolve into this role, and he's certainly got a long ways to go with this, at some point he is going to have to be a person of account. He is going to have to be a person that drives winning and who you feel like is going to set the example for other players. Because I'm just not sure that that's going to be R.J. Barrett for him. I'm not sure that bringing in Kelly Olynyk is going to be that for him or Jakob Pertl is going to be that for him or any other veteran that they try to sign is, is going to all of a sudden set the table for Scotty Barnes or he's going to learn from that. I think he would have gotten that already, being around Fred Van Vliet, being around Pascal Siakam, being around OG Ananobi, being around Nick Nurse, guys who had won, and that that would have rubbed off a little bit more. So, yeah, call me, call me concerned, call me crazy, whatever. That's how I feel about it. Anyway, quick break. Let's talk to... My friend and yours, Ariel Hawani, about UFC 298 that's creeping up this weekend and then why Conor McGregor's return keeps getting weird roadblocks. That's next. The best in the business, the voice of MMA, Ariel Hawani. What's up, buddy? You there? Listening? You out? I can hear your call. Hello, can you hear me? Hi, yeah, hi, no, JD. Yeah, yeah, How no. are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. What was that? I don't know what that was, but listen, um, are you now the voice of Canadian MMA? Are you the face of Canadian MMA now that it's back on uh, Roger Sportsnet? What's going on? Well, I, I think that you would be in a position to be able to say that. So would you like to say that? Because I think it would carry a lot more weight than if I did. Yeah. Some of your takes <laughs> yeah, been a little bit yes. off. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh you don't want to you don't want to give me that mantle. That's that's and honestly, could I tell you something? I don't want that either. I don't want the pressure of that because the the difference between my interpretations of MMA and and your interpretations of the UFC is like you actually dig in deep and speak to like every all parties involved and try to get a complete picture of things and you're like you're a real journalist right when people call me a journalist i laugh i'm like what are you doing i'm not a journalist i'm an opinionist and i'm not qualified even for that uh you're a journalist like you are one you went to journalism school you do it the right way um and, and so i don't want the pressure of having to be a voice of mma or the voice of mma in this country given that yeah i'm not i'm not prepared to do to do the work Fair? Typical Torontonian buckling <laughs> under the pressure, not wanting to take the uh, the bull by oh, the horns. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah, no. Typical Torontonian. How do you think they built the best city in Canada? This is with Torontonians. That's how. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, other than like your city where, I mean, the city that you, you say you're from, even though I think you've been there once in like the last, I don't know, what, 30 years, 40 years? Like how, how old are you? I always forget. But um you, you guys thinking big money into the old disheveled stadium that everybody wants to rip down, the eyesore uh, stadium. They're like, let's put $80 million into that. It's like, yeah, that's good spending. That's a good way to, way to spend money. No, we'd love to be a city like that someday. By the way, I wish it was $80 million. They're saying $800 million. <laughs> this, this is the dumbest thing. And, and I hate to say, it's just like 
It's Quebec 101. Oh, so good. Like 20 years after the Expos yeah. leave, now you're going to try to renovate this oh, so good. stadium, which responsible for the demise of the Expos because no one wanted to go out into the, you know, Nowheresville to mm. watch in the middle of summer a baseball team so in, a, in, a, in a domed, cavernous, Mm-hmm. Stadium that with a roof that didn't open. I mean, it was and not made for baseball. I don't know what they're thinking, but uh, it's embarrassing. I can't believe it. Like tear that thing down, mm-hmm. start over, and and honestly, what are you what are you renovating it for? Nothing mm-hmm. happens there. There's like the odd monster truck game, the odd impact or what Montreal FC game. That's it. Nothing happens there. I don't I don't know monster what they're truck. Sure. Yeah, uh, I won't say anything poorly of Monster Truck because I'm pretty sure that they've uh, they've advertised on the station before. So I would say it's awesome. Go down to Monster Truck. Uh, okay, so yeah, UFC 298 this weekend. Um, but I, I want to. I'm not going to start with that. I'm going to start with. I'm going to get the the juicy stuff out of the way because we still don't have a main event for 300. And you went through on your show yesterday. Uh, the, the different iterations of what you think the UFC wants, right? You went through three different iterations of, hey, this is the safety net plan, this is the potential backup plan, and then this is what they're really hoping for. Uh, and yet, when you said this is what they're really hoping for, I kept expecting you to finally say, and they are really trying to get this Connor thing together. They really want him to fight. Dana's coy, like he's on McAfee, and he's saying that they don't have the fight together. There's all these conspiracies about, hey, they're trying to get a new deal done with ESPN, and so they're holding back Connor's uh, last fights because they want to have some leverage, even though, what's Connor now? 35 years old, and he's fought, what, twice in the last five years in the UFC? Three times in the last five years in the UFC? Like, I, I didn't look at, again, because I didn't put the work in, classic Toronto guy, but... I just don't understand how Conor McGregor's name carries that much weight in negotiation with ESPN when you know you're only getting those two fights and you shouldn't even be, it shouldn't even be a certainty that you're getting two of them. Like, what, what the hell is happening here? Well, there's a few things happening. Number one, the UFC believes, and, and rightly so, that UFC 300 on its own will sell. And it will sell. You know, this weekend is UFC 298. It's a fantastic main card. 299 is the same. But those numbers don't mean anything. 300 means something to people. It's something that will be celebrated. They'll make a whole big deal about it. And so they felt, why put Connor on that card, which is probably going to do over a million buys, just off the name value alone, why put Connor on there, save him for another card, which uh, maybe they'll do down the line, which as of right now would be the June 29th International Fight Week card, which is 303 or 304, whatever it would be. And then you get two bites at that million buy Apple uh, if you will. And, and so I get that. The problem is there isn't anyone even remotely close to Connor in terms of someone who is like a superstar that could headline a card like this. Mm-mm. Witness the fact that we're now less than two months away from this card and they still don't have a main event and they're scrambling to try to put something together. It will be fine. It will do well. The rest of the card is, is great. But it's crazy to me that you have a ready-to-go Conor McGregor like foaming at the mouth, and they're like, nah, we're going to save him for later. Now, where it gets even weirder is, as you said, Dana's doing media, and he's like, yeah, maybe in the fall. That's not what they're talking about. They were just a little bit perturbed that Conor went out and announced it on his own back on December 31st that he was coming back on June 29th. They like to control the news, control the narrative, control the announcements, and so that was just a bit of flexing a muscle. But as of right now, Barring injuries or anything like that, the current plan is for him to return on June 29th. And Dana is now saying that by Saturday he will announce the 300 main event. 
Um, and so hopefully this saga will end in just a few days. I got to tell you, this is one of the funniest stories ever because I always say respect the audience, respect the audience, respect the audience, right? Like I've had, I remember when I was first starting to do my show, I would have meetings with our old PD and he would go, you can't get so in the weeds with certain things. You got to keep it a little bit more simple. And I would go, I I don't really feel that way. I feel as though people want... Um, your authentic self and the things that you find interesting, the audience will find interesting. And and then you tell me that they go, well, no, the audience is going to buy 300 because it's, oh, zeros. <laughs> like, it's just, oh, my God, maybe he was right. Maybe you shouldn't respect the audience because if you're going to buy a card, I, here's my prediction, and, and I, I'm going to stand 10 toes down on this. There is no way that UFC 300 is going to be a better card than this one this weekend, 298. Like, 298 has four fights at the very top that I am completely enamored by. Uh, I, I don't disagree. Also, by the way, 299 might be the best of the trio. Yeah, 299, uh, 299 is awesome, 299 too. Is amazing. Yeah. It's like yes. 300 is not going to top uh, either of these two. I, so I'm people are going to buy 300 because they're like, ooh, 300. <laughs> Look at it. It's like the movie. Yes. Yes. No, no, trust me. People people have been obsessed. I mean, I've been getting questions about 300 probably yeah. for the last two years. Like, what do you think is going to be the headliner? What do you think they're going to do? Blah, 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 blah. People love this. Um, and let's be honest. It's a great card. Like, if, this were, if, if the April 13th card was some random number, 309, the card would be done. Like, you would have Holloway and Gaethje at the top. You would have another title fight. You'd have Yuri and Rakic. You'd have... Figueredo and, and Cody Garbrandt. You'd have Holly Holm against Kayla Harrison making her debut. Like, it is a stacked card. It's just mm. the expectations have been so high. People thought, J.D., and you would appreciate this as a sports guy, they really they really convinced themselves that the UFC was going to announce the main event during a Super Bowl commercial. Yeah. They, they had convinced, they were waiting for this. Like this. In the wrestling business, this is called working yourself into a shoot. They had convinced themselves that the, what? These commercials are bought months in advance. UFC's not just going to waltz in there and say, hey, CBS, we need 30 seconds to announce our main event. Yeah, now, course. again, if it was an ABC, ESPN, Super Bowl, they could have you know, wedged an ad in there. But these people on, online have convinced themselves that this is going to be the end-all, be-all. And what I keep saying to them is, like, stop worrying about 300. 298 is fantastic. 299 is fantastic. There's some big fights coming up. In MMA, there's, there's the Francis Ngannou mega fight coming up as well. Like, people are driving themselves insane, and that's why I say I can't wait for this saga to end yeah. so that we can stop speculating and just move on with our lives. Totally agree. The only reason I'm doing it, though, is, is not because it's 300, because it's a big, shiny number. I'm doing it because the past in the, U, the UFC in the past has indicated to us that these century marks are a big deal for them. UFC 100 was a big deal for them. 200, big deal for them. And now this one is kind of like, all right, there's a depth of card, but there isn't really a massive of headline and all of us are actually been cl- kind of clamoring for Conor McGregor. We seem to be ignoring the two cards that are right in front of us that are, like you said, pretty spectacular. If you're a fight fan or even if you're not, even if you're a little bit less of one, I would say that, yeah, this is probably uh, a money well spent couple of cards. Uh, this is one where you kind of get together in a group and decide to split split over it. It's like some of the other ones, not so much. Maybe even the last one, not so much. But these next two are awesome. Um, I guess just why, what do you think this says overall? Is there is there anything, is this kind of just a... A one-off, like they, you know, you and I have talked in the past of having maybe too many events or trying to stack too many cards. But what does it say about the UFC that we are hitting 300 and the best they can maybe do is a, yeah, Hamzat-Leon fight that I don't think most people are too interested in. Like, I, it's fine. It's a good fight. They're two good fighters, but I'm not like, 
<laughs> and uh, I guess it also says something that the one guy potentially can't even fight in the United States. But yeah, like, is, is this a state of MMA situation for you? Is it not? What, what do you think it is? Well, first of all, I'm not holding my breath on that fight. Uh, as, as you alluded to, Hamzat has issues getting into North America. So I, I was just saying this is what they were trying for, but it's, for sure. uh, it's a tall task. So right now everyone is uh, kind of waiting to see what rabbit they pull out of their hat. Uh, I don't think there is – this is not an indictment on the UFC. Yes, there aren't maybe as many super-duper stars. Like when UFC 200 came around, you had – Conor McGregor, you had uh, Ronda Rousey, you had Conor fighting multiple times that year, you had um, you know, the likes of Nate Diaz who were active and, and big stars, and you had Holly Holm coming off the Ronda Rousey win and um, you know, Brock Lesnar coming back and uh, all these guys. So perhaps you had some bigger names, some blockbuster names at your disposal, but remember, the reason why three, this happens all the time. The, the, the great news about what's coming up in the next two months is you're getting stacked cards. You're getting, you know, Henry and Marab and, and uh, Ian Gary and Jeff Neal and Robert Whitaker and Paulo Costa and obviously Volk and Taporia. And then the following month you get Cheeto and Sean O'Malley and the debut of MVP against Kevin Holland and VP against Benoit Saint-Denis, et cetera, et cetera. But the unfortunate byproduct of having a couple of months of stacked cards is then the cupboard is pretty bare the next one right Mm -hmm. and don't forget about what we got in december so this is just a byproduct of three out of their last four pay-per-views and i'm excluding the toronto card because that was pretty lackluster yeah three out of their last four were spectacular and so there there isn't like this you know this this never-ending flow of headliners and oh by the way islam who's the lightweight champion isn't available um you know they've had multiple title fights on some of these cards it's just it's just one of those things that there's going to be a drop off and I think they banked on some guys being available and 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 honestly I think if it's easy DDP that would be a, a spectacular main event it's fine I don't know why they don't just do it already mm-hmm. but they're waiting for something big and thus the hold up yeah um, I've made you know you and I have uh, have always strongly disagreed about Izzy and uh I, I really do feel like the the bloom is completely off the rose now. I know people will buy it. People will care if it does happen. But to me, he's just a completely non-needle mover at this point. Like, yeah, I view him, yeah, like, I, fine. Even if he ends up getting the belt back, great. I, I don't think that there's going to be a long run behind it. I think that, yeah, we've kind of seen what he is and who he is. And, yeah, um, it's fine. Cool guy. Um, interesting guy. Great to your show. Crazy. But this yeah, is a crazy take. I know, I know. Crazy, this is we, crazy we very, take. This we is disagree. A crazy take. I, I, know, I don't care. Look, look at it. Look he lost all of his biggest fights. Following. Yeah. What does that mean? He lost all his biggest fights. He, all the he, he all, had, all like, the times where it was like, hey, champion. step up. Yeah, exactly. I know, but who did he beat? Uh, well, he knocked out Alex exactly. Yeah, after even getting he, knocked hey, out by him. That's that the voice of MMA that you all just heard stumbling over who his hero, Israel Adesanya, what? beat. Because he couldn't remember one memorable moment that Israel like Adesanya had. It was like, yeah, I was like, oh, yeah. Was, uh, yeah, he beat I'm a bunch of pumpkins. What are you talking about? I'm going in freaking <laughs> chronological order. I know, yeah, you're pulling about? up his Wikipedia page. Win. You're like, who did he win? Hey, Siri, who did you were like, I can't I'm use voice command in the car. I'm on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
throwing tape. Like <laughs> uh, active stars in the UFC, active stars yeah. who fight multiple times a year. Who's a bigger star than him? Uh, that's I, I, but I do think that that's actually like a an indictment of the rest of the UFC. No, yeah, I no, do. No, 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 mm-hmm. don't, that, that's a cop out. Yeah, because they I'm let Francis go, and they don't have Connor, and yeah, they've just they've no. had other guys that haven't really hit. They're they're hoping I think that's that question. Yeah, I think that they're hoping that in well, you know what? This is actually a good way to pivot into this one. Is the the fellow you know the the buddy of his Volkanovski? I was thinking a lot about him heading into this card, which is. Okay, it seems, because I was watching it on your show, and the discussion is, okay, he kind of had to take the second Makachev fight because of the earning potential that it was going to give him down the stretch of his career. So I never fault the fighter when it comes to trying to chase paper. And you and I are the, the very same when it comes to this, is that for the most part, these guys get the raw end of the deal financially, constantly, constantly, constantly. And that's why you and I both root for them when they go pursue these boxing careers and they actually make money. And why Francis was such an awesome story because not only did he go chase the money, he, he performed admirably. And what a, what a tale that was. What a, what a way to embrace that. But with Volk, he does this hilarious commercial. Did you see the commercial that he put out there? The yeah, I'm too old for this yeah. fight? It was awesome. He's got this incredible personality. Every time he's been on your show, he's a must-watch guy because he gets it. He's, he's humble. He's interesting. He's intelligent. His work ethic is phenomenal. Like, I'm a Canadian. He makes me like Australians. That's crazy. That's a crazy thing to happen. And he's just, to me, could have been one of the faces of the MMA uh, he could have been one of the faces of the UFC, and it doesn't feel like he is because that last loss. Do you think that the UFC regrets it, that his camp regrets it, that he regrets it, that they rushed that Makachev fight so quickly, and that it did spoil some of the momentum that he had as the pound-for-pound champ in the UFC? Well, first, I don't think the UFC regrets it because it saved their main event, and, and they're all just, you know, mm-hmm. the, to them, it's just like, okay, yeah, this one meat. was fixed, yeah. all good. Meat, meat now, into the machine, as, yeah. Exactly. As far as Volk or his team, I only think that they can truly answer that question on Sunday morning. Um, and that's mm-hmm. what makes this fight so interesting. Like, the, 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 the result of Saturday sort of uh, can, can, can finally close the book on that decision. He made the decision as the number one pound-for-pound fighter in the world back in October to take a fight against a very ready, very game Islamakhachev, who was number two and in some people's eyes number one, on 11 days' notice. It proved mm-hmm. to be uh, a huge mistake. He gets knocked out. He suffers his first stoppage loss in the UFC. And, and as you know, a knockout may not just affect you on that night. It could affect, you know, your next few fights. You may never be the same again. And so we are going to find out just how big of a mistake that was. Was it a, was it a, a mistake in a vacuum? And he's able to bounce back against a supremely confident, cocky, rising star mm-hmm. who has all the tools of being a superstar in Europe. Or, um, you know, is he, is he going to live to regret this? And, uh, and, and that will be the beginning of the end as he, you know, approaches the back end of his 30s. Uh, this is a really, really tough fight. And uh, Taporia is a really good fighter. I know he may not be a household name. This guy is so cocky. I don't know if you know this. He's already changed his social media bio to UFC featherweight champion. Yeah, I love it. And has it listed as 50 to 0 when he's 14 and 0. Like that is putting it out there, man. And you know, the fans are going to roast him if he loses this fight. Um, He says he's going to finish him in a, in a, in a round and he's not going to give any of the other featherweight contenders a shot at the belt because they've all had chances and failed. And he's going to fight Conor McGregor at the Bernabeu, which is where Real Real Madrid uh, plays. He is, 
He's now living in Spain. And so this guy, like, has it all. He just has to go out there and beat one of the greatest featherweights and fighters of all time. So I just think it's such a fascinating fight with so many storylines. But ultimately, to answer your question again, I, I, I don't know if we can say it was a mistake just yet. We have to wait to see how this particular fight plays out. Do you think the UFC would rather have a memorable win for Taporia or a memorable win for Ian Gary? Like, which star do you think that um, they would like to be more invested low. in? Taporia, for okay. sure. I mean, Taporia's contract, a lot of people didn't know this. His contract was up at the end of last year. And Hunter Campbell, who is the number two guy in the UFC, flew all the way to Spain to meet with him face-to-face to give him a great deal and this title shot. They don't do mm-hmm. that for a lot of people. They tell them to fly to them. Um, Vegas to Spain isn't exactly, you know, a one-hour flight. So... They have a, they see, I mean, great looking guy, talks a good game, dresses well, uh, has a ton of sponsorships, mm. and uh, is embraced by his home country of Georgia and Spain. Uh, he's becoming a huge star over there in, uh, in Spain. Uh, there's a soccer player, I don't know if you're familiar with him, Sergio Ramos. Of course. He's one of the most famous soccer players in the world. He went to his fight in, in June in Jacksonville. Like, he flew in just cool. to sit there in the front row to watch his guy fight. So, uh, that's a really big deal. Ian still has a little bit more to prove, so I would say Taporia. Yeah, no, I, the reason I ask it is because, yeah, the UFC has the, the template for pushing the United Kingdom guys, right? Like, they, they, like a, they love a story from England or from Ireland, and it just feels like the, the opportunity to become the next great Irish fighter is, like, they're, they're, they've got the in-house branding and marketing built for it. And I feel like, yeah, Gary, he's undefeated still, right? He's, yeah, he doesn't have a loss. Um, we're not live, are we? Yeah, we're live. Yeah, ooh, oh, now man. you got to text I was me. Tell, I was, I, yeah, no, 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 no. I was going to tell you that. No, no, no. Listen, I was going to tell you to edit your show because I don't want you to be embarrassed. Ireland's not in the United Kingdom, yeah, J.D. Right, Get so out of Canada and yeah. learn some geography. No, but it's just oh like the, the, the whatever, the... This, embarrassing. They, it's not embarrassing. This is the spot. They, they, they love the fighters from the region. They do. They just, they really do. And so uh, it's like... Yeah, tell, tell, an Irishman, tell an Irishman that they're part of the United Kingdom yeah, and see how that goes Listen, first of all, half my family, that's the, that's the roots back to Ireland. That's the old country uh, for my half my family. It's like, listen, I know where it is, geography. I know what it is. I'm just saying that this is... This is their favorite thing, right? They love English fighters. They love Paddy Pimblett. And they love Conor McGregor. And they love Irish fighters. Like, that's it. It's like, they, they do. And I would think that Ian Gary being undefeated and being a real name for them that hasn't really had a moment, that him on this card, if he dominated, they would allow them to have, like, a different push, right? That this would all of a sudden be someone that I think that they could put at the top of a card. Uh, sure, 100%. But also, Ilya Taporia is undefeated mm-hmm. and is, uh, you know, hailing from a market that they've yet to tap into. Um, you know, Ireland is right there for them. They don't necessarily need the help. And, oh, by the way, Ireland doesn't have – Ireland has one arena that mm-hmm. only fits like 10,000. The reason they've never done a massive show in Ireland and the reason why Conor McGregor has only fought there once is because it's, it's not a big enough venue. Spain has multiple – 20,000 seat arenas in Barcelona and Madrid. Like there's more business to be done there if this guy turns into a huge megastar. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just different levels right now. Do you think he, he is? Do you think he is that? At the end of this year. Like, I, I'm just, I'm genuinely curious if um, you think that he is that, or if this is just, Hey, he's tall, he's big. He, he's, he's, he's Irish. 
and he's undefeated. But if there's actually real beyond this star potential, like he he can hit that ceiling. He has the skills. He has mm. the talent, no doubt. He's only getting better. I feel like he's still quite raw. Um, mm. This is a nice test for him, Jeff Neal. But I will say he doesn't have the same connection with the fan base, whether it's the Irish fan base or the larger MMA fan base that a Connor has, or even that yeah. an Ilya has in Spain and Georgia. Mm. And the reason for that is all the stuff that has happened over the last couple months, you know, uh, online with his wife and all this. But I, I think some people feel like he tries a little bit too hard and mm. just doesn't have that authenticity. Who, who, are, who are some of the most, you know, beloved fighters in UFC history? They're not necessarily, you know, the winningest fighters, but it's the, the Diaz brothers, you know, guys mm-hmm. like that yeah. um, who they felt like were like, true real deal dudes that you want to like support until the death bj penn back in the day you know guys like that who you know people really connected with on a on an emotional level and uh for whatever reason he hasn't quite connected he's 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 polarizing and people care about him but Mm. i don't know if it's the same type of care than than the, the the affection that fans have for others i do think sean strickland really got the better of him and really did hurt him in terms of uh, the way he's perceived, and, and like people can say that was line crossing or whatever, but I, I would score. What do you you like to do the ten eight Helwani rounds? I would say that that was a ten eight Strickland in terms of the barbs that they traded back and forth and publicly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, Sean, uh, for better or worse, is an example of what I just was talking about, right? Yeah. Uh, it, you know, his commentary, his demeanor, his persona not my cup of tea, but he connects with people because people think he's authentic and people think like, yeah, this guy speaks for me. (laughs) This guy is one of us. And, and Ian, for whatever reason, hasn't had that connection with the Irish people, which is problematic. And, and partially because he doesn't live there. He doesn't train out of there. He's Mm. viewed as somewhat of a nomad and uh, they don't seem to back him like they did, you know, the, the Connors of the world. Okay. Last one on 298. Um, from a reputation and what they had in the moment, because again, I don't know what the financials ended up being for this guy. Uh, maybe they worked out well. I, I don't know. I didn't see it though. It doesn't seem like it did. Has anybody misplayed their career at the top worse than Henry Cejudo? Uh, you know, there there have been some blunders, but his was particularly interesting because came crawling he's back on that card the first. Well, he, he's on that card, you know, the first one in the pandemic era. Uh-huh. And they put him on there, and he has a great win over Dominic Cruz. And he retires in the ring yeah. um, out of the blue. And then 45 minutes later at the press conference, he's like, well, I would come back, you know, for more money. And so that just told us, like, oh, you're not actually retired. You were just trying yeah. to kind of hold him up for money. And it's surgery and all this stuff. And it just feels like he just... He didn't do it the right way. And there's one thing that Dana White, among many things, but perhaps at the very top when it comes to his relationship with fighters that really pisses him off, and that's fighters who retire and just leave the belt vacant. He mm-hmm. hates that. He, he held the grudge against George St. Pierre for doing it back in 2013. Hated when Cejudo did it. Uh, you know, didn't like a, this Francis situation, the way it all unfolded. Like, he just does not like that. He feels like it's the ultimate slap in the face. And even yesterday he did an interview um, with, a, with a journalist named Kevin Ioli, and he mentioned how big of a blunder that was. And you could just see that he still holds a grudge. Now, uh, they did give him a title shot in, in May, 
so they didn't hold that big of a grudge. But, yeah, I think that uh, it was a blunder, and, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. He's still one of the greatest fighters of all time mm. when you also factor in the fact that he's an Olympic gold medalist, which mm-hmm. is absurd, and won the 125 belt and the 35 belt. I think if he loses this fight, uh, very good chance it's his last fight. I, I don't see... I don't see him sticking around much longer. Uh, last thing for me, I'll let you go, prep for your, your show. Um, Raps next trade update. Uh, you know, you got the incredible start from OG. I did tell you that he struggles to stay on the floor, but his plus minus was like incredible. You got Ben Stiller tweeting out about OG, that the crowd is chanting his name. You guys didn't lose like a minute with him on the floor. Um, it started hot for the Raptors with quickly and RJ and now it's sort of dissipated. And now I, I got to tell you, I really would have liked to have been told that quickly, uh, is as bad as he is defensively, but also that he'll never rein in the three point shooting. Like the, he, he hasn't met a, a pull up three that he doesn't like feel a little misled by you. Got to say. <laughs> Yeah. No, no, no. We got fleeced. All you <laughs> Toronto guys told me that we got fleeced. Oh, my God. I can hear this till the and, day and, I die. By the way, the best part about that little soliloquy uh-huh. is just like back in late December, uh-huh. you're forgetting uh, right now the most impactful part of that deal, and that's Precious, oh, Precious Ochua. He yeah. has been a lifesaver. <laughs> it's I, like, unreal. And you keep saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, he'll show himself. He's, he's been unbelievable. I know, but Sam and Hands will he's show himself. unbelievable. Yeah, that's fine. But in this in this current spell where we're you know having players drop like flies and Randall's out and OG is out, he has been gigantic. Hardenstein's out. Uh, he has been immense. Uh, like on on Monday in the Rockets game where we got totally screwed. One of the worst calls in the history of calls. I can't believe they called a foul on Jalen Brunson after that valiant comeback. It was awful. He was gigantic in yeah. that fourth quarter. Yeah. So um, I. I the OG thing is weird. It's yeah. weird how they handled it. The Knicks usually handle these situations weird where they like say, oh, it's day-to-day, and then it ends up being surgery, and he's out for a month. But as long as we're healthy come April, I think we have the deepest team in the East. Mm-hmm. I'm not afraid of anyone. I'm not afraid of Boston. I'm not afraid of Philly. I'm not afraid of the Bucks. Um, I thought the deadline deal was fantastic. This is a fantastic team. We just have to stay healthy, and that's mm-hmm. obviously everyone's big if. But I hope you guys don't still think that you won this trade. I well, mean, no, I on. don't because here's, here's the thing. It's all these trades take time. We, we, we will evaluate. It. It's got to be years later, but as of today, I said this last Friday, as of today, if the Knicks decided, you know what, we're going to trade a Chua and OG, they could get more than what the Raptors got in that trade. That that's just, that's just a fact. That's and, yeah. So, so to me, it's going to be a moving target, so nobody cry about what I'm saying here. But as of today, as of this very moment, there's absolutely no question who won the trade. And that's with a guy who's not playing because his elbow might be non-repairable. Like, who knows, even if he'll come back at all this year. Uh, <laughs> it just, I, we, we can only hope. We can only hope. We can only hope that it's not destroyed and that, you know, there's some pieces of it. It's not like an R.A. Dickey situation where it's like he's got no UCL and... You know, he's got to change all of his mechanics. You never know. You never know with this stuff. You never know. Elbows are tricky. You know, I hurt my elbow doing a curl once, and now it's every single time I do a curl. It hurts. So could be the same for OG. We're good. We're good. All-star break coming up. Come mid-March, we'll be firing on all cylinders. We got Boyan coming off the bench. We got Alex Mm -hmm. Burks. Uh, We got Deuce McBride. 
Uh, Robinson's going to come back. I mean, we're going to be like yeah. nine, ten deep. Yeah. Look out. No, Knicks, no, there's absolutely no doubt that this is the most positive I've ever felt about the Knicks, not, or at least since the 90s. Uh, Ariel Hawani, uh, the actual voice of MMA. Thanks, as always, for making time, buddy. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. See you, buddy. Uh, you can listen to him later today on his show, the MMA Hour. Um, okay, quickly, let's wrap up the show. What's your questions about Outdoor Ed? I just never heard of it. Can you kind of give us a, like, what is that? Nick, Do they just banish you outside? Do you know about it? He doesn't know. No? Okay. So then it's not a Toronto thing at all? Okay. I was curious. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Outdoor Ed is a class that you can take when you are from a place like the Yukon, I guess. I'm sure that there are places in Northern Ontario that have this as well. But out, outdoor is outdoor education. And so it's a class where you would go, you would learn outdoor survival skills and then they would culminate in going on actual trips for long stays in the wilderness we had one where it was you got to build a snow cave and be able to stay in that snow cave overnight you had one where you'd have to go and be able to set up canvas tents stay overnight multiple nights you'd have a winter survival 24 hours where you had to go out in the woods with only a fanny pack and the supplies that were listed to you in the fanny pack and make yourself a makeshift shelter and survive for 24 hours. And again, you were checked upon, like the teacher would come through with a a snowmobile every couple of hours and make sure that everyone, you know, was still alive and kicking. Um, But yeah, you had to be able to survive in the woods for 24 hours, often in different scenarios uh, without, yeah, without help. Uh, you would do river trips, both whitewater and yeah, just it's yeah, through a canoe or through raft. It was, it was fun. It was honestly, it was the, it was a, it was a genuinely competitive class to be in. A lot of people wanted to be in it because you wanted to be able to do that. Uh, yeah, but it was outdoor survival skills and, uh, yeah, it was awesome. First of all, the retreats, first of all. So we didn't no, them. you guys didn't have... Did, we didn't you, have... No, we called them retreats, but we didn't have actual classes for that, no. You had, went to camp you'd Kirby be spending like... a week in the snow? <laughs> Literally. No, definitely nothing like that. Yeah, no, Nick's retreats. You were spending a week in the snow? Yeah, we spent like... We went away for like a week, and that was it. And then in the snow? Away. Yeah, in the snow or in... Doing the, everything? Okay. Everything. Damn, I never went through retreats. that. Retreats. But was that separate from your physical education <laughs> yeah. class? Oh, wow. That's, yeah, you had to oh, do... You lit. know, there's PE, and then there's outdoor ed. They're very different things, yeah. No. Uh, I'd like to compare and contrast the ones that Nick got versus ours. Right? <laughs> you got your teacher really pulling like... up in the snowmobile to check on you. That's actually yeah. a crazy visual for me. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> good. It was great stuff, honestly. Uh, rare, always very, very cool experiences, and I'm I'm glad I got to have it. Because when you're a kid, you don't think about that at all. You don't think of you're not appreciative in the moment. But yeah, when people say I used to walk uphill in the snow to school, it's like I'm from the Yukon. I did, all right. I actually, I, I get those. I get those. I get those medals, unlike so many of you here. Uh, yeah, I'm better than you. That's all. Um, okay, so <laughs> subscribe to the podcast, leave five stars, and we'll see you tomorrow with Kelly Rudy.